0: Welcome back to Mince Elevens from the Edge. I am Jeremy Glazer, the co-chair of the Mins Venture Capital and Emerging Company Practice. Mins is a nationally leading law firm focused on helping emerging growth companies achieve success. Check us out at minceedge.com. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome our guest today, Lonnie Adelman. Lonnie is the founder and CEO of iAssay, Inc., a company focused on cloud connected point of care diagnostics. He is a 30 year veteran of the biotechnology, medical device, high tech and consumer products industries. Lonnie worked with companies ranging from startups to fortune 10 companies in varying capacities. He founded aerocomp Inc, the first company in the world to ship a programmable PCR machine. Lonnie's 12-year tenure as an engineering technical expert with Hewlett-Packard was primarily focused on technical innovation, mentoring those on the team, and managing cross-functional global teams focused on high-volume product development and corporate initiatives. Wow, what a, what a wonderful background, and I'm sure you have so many great insights to share with our entrepreneurial listeners. Um, on today's podcast, we and are going to discuss how Lonnie built iAssay, and some of the lessons he learned along the way. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Jeremy.
0: So why don't we kick off? Uh, I always like to just ask in the beginning, you know, of all the things you could have done with your life, Lonnie, why did you choose to become an entrepreneur?
1: That's a very good question. Uh, the primary reason that I chose to become an entrepreneur was because I was always on the edge of what was going on, the leading edge as they say. Uh, So, wherever I was working, I was always pushing to do more than what the status quo was and do some interesting uh, things that I usually had to talk management into doing. And so, I I had just finished a large project with uh, my my last employer, and uh, I had talked them into revolutionizing what they were doing for military trainers. And I decided that what I wanted to do is just go and solve really difficult problems. And, and I wanted to decide what I wanted to work on and make those decisions autonomously. And so I uh, gave notice to the employer. They wanted to keep me and they asked what they could do to keep me. And I said, I, I don't think you could do this. Uh, this, was, this was many, many, this was decades ago. And, and and I said, okay, well, you need to start a new division. It has to be the advanced development division, and I have to be the general manager. Uh, and it, I believe I was about 27 years old. And so the boss said, yeah, you're right. We can't do that. And I said, I didn't think so. So the next week, I, was, um, I, I started AeroComp and started going out and doing contracting and looking to to solve solve uh, tough problems for uh, other companies. And um, at the same time, I had an eye for looking for some kind of product to design and manufacture. So Mm -hmm. that's why I became an entrepreneur, because I wanted to solve tough problems Um, along the way I thought about making money. But like many entrepreneurs, the money isn't really what drove me to do it. Uh, the money uh, was there, but for me, it was solving a problem that other people hadn't been able to solve before, and and being the person who was at the forefront of solving that problem. That's what charges me up.
0: Wonderful. Well, I imagine that that's what led you to develop IASA. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about why did you start IASA?
1: So the reason that I started iAssay was that the the company that I spun it out of was and still is involved in product development for other companies, going from start to finish or doing a phase of a, a product. And so everything that my other company does is all related To a product for somebody else. And iAssay was an idea that we came up with, kind of an answer to um, the the rumors about Obamacare coming into being and the uncertainty. And there were many people that were very afraid they wouldn't get the services they needed. Nobody knew anything about anything at that point, other than there was going to be some big changes. And um, I've always been interested in applying engineering uh, for healthcare because it's an opportunity to directly impact people's lives. And so I, I thought about what we might be able to do to help ensure some aspect of healthcare that uh, would make sure that we either provide the same or better care for patients. And this was an evolution. It, it, it wasn't like uh, overnight we decided to do what you would see on our, our website, isa.net. Um That evolved over a period of time. And so I always enjoyed working on <clears throat> small handheld devices that were high performance, low power, that kind of thing. And we kind of, I had a... A business partner at, at the time for the product development company, and we thought about um, doing patient testing at the point of care. So the point of care means that instead of a patient going into a laboratory and and getting tested, or uh, or a phlebotomist comes out to where the patient is at home and draws blood and then drives the blood sample to the laboratory for analysis, point of care diagnostics. So we're in the diagnostics point of care business. Doing point of care diagnostics means that you, you take a patient sample wherever they are and you run, run that test where they are. And typically you get a, a pretty fast answer. In our case, it ends up being uh, like a five minute answer And so I decided, um, along with my partner at the time, that we were going to develop a handheld that was going to be an open platform for adapting all kinds of tests that already existed and adapting them to one handheld device so that a doctor or a nurse only needs that device to do enough tests to generate the panels and understand the patient condition and uh, we were we were not funded uh for a long time we were self-funded and we and we kept uh moving across lines in the sand until we got enough together that we could convince some investors to finally invest some money externally and um, so the reason that we put isa on the map and it became a separate corporation that was spun out is because we saw a need. We were actually ahead. We were ahead of the curve. Um, this concept started in 2014 about, and there wasn't a lot about digital health and and telemedicine and the things we see every day on the news. And um, so when when that need arrived, people started to understand why we did it. And, and the value of it. So- well, maybe um, help,
0: us, help, help, our, help our listeners understand that a little more. Help us understand what what is the key advantages to this approach of where you're taking, you could do the test at the point of care and you can handle a lot of different existing tests all within that one handheld.
1: Okay, so besides doing the tests, we also store all the data through partners' internet connections to do things like automatically populate an electronic health record, which people know today. They didn't know in 2014 what that was. Now, pretty much everybody does. You can use the same data to do quality control, and so we can track machines out in the field and see which ones are working, which ones aren't. Um, at the biggest advantage uh, is that you have one device. The, the status quo care does exist. These cartridges are already cleared by the FDA. They're already commercially available. But in order to use them, you might need five different readers, maybe 10 readers to, to operate those cartridges and read them because each manufacturer designed their own reader to read their cartridges. So we eliminate all those readers by providing one device that adapts to the same cartridges and the nurse that they're seeing a patient at home does not have to carry in an airline check-in bag with five readers and understand them all the readers and understand how to operate them so that's all gone now it's one device then the other piece is most of those point-of-care readers that manufacturers provide do not have a data connection so the, the answer is read on a little screen on their device It either is written down on a piece of paper or put in a spreadsheet or typed into a health record, and uh, it's error-prone, and uh, and even today with COVID-19, which we're addressing, Health and Human Services insists that every positive and negative result be sent to them. So can you imagine somebody doing 500 to 1,000 tests a month And they have to type in the test results of each one of those, or else they get fined $500 a day. We Hmm. eliminate that by automatically sending the data. It could go to Health and Human Services, and uh, we solve that problem because we have a data connection. So, the two things that you get with the iACC device that are very well, there's actually more than two. The another part is the patient doesn't have to go anywhere. And the the patient sample, whether it's urine or whether it's blood, doesn't have to be transported anywhere. You get a result in five minutes instead of a day or two days. If you're you're not ambulatory and they need to do a stat test, a stat test is a half a day. So we eliminate the time, Uh, we get a quick result so people can be diagnosed quickly. 70% 70% of all diagnoses are based on diagnostics tests. So the faster we can get the diagnostics done, the faster the diagnosis can happen, the better the patient will feel. And so that's, uh, that's a, the time element is a big factor. And the data connection is huge because it's forever. It can be reused. It can be readdressed from anywhere in the world. And having one unit to do all those tests is huge so you don't have to have five units in a suitcase.
0: Absolutely, so obviously everybody today is focused on the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's pretty exciting that your diagnostic can be used for COVID testing.
1: That was something that was by design. So our the original discussion that I had with with my then partner was Let's let's put this together. One big advantage is if something new happens, then we could quickly onboard the new test and start running it. We don't have to design a new machine to do it. We already have the machine. We just build a simple adapter and go. And so that's exactly what happened in March when, uh, when the uh, pandemic started really affecting the United States. Um, we were able to... Onboarded um, one brand of COVID-19 strips almost immediately. We were actually a month away from finishing the new model. And so uh, in April, we had the new model and that was the one that we intended to apply to COVID-19. It took us about a week to start reading one brand of COVID-19 uh, antibody strips. And oh, yes. we were doing testing in Mexico within about two weeks. So we had testing done uh, in April in Mexico, and, and um, we were able to watch through our internet portal, watch the data coming in from Mexico as they did the test. And uh, they had a question about whether they had run one of the samples or not. This was a validation test, so it wasn't the kind of testing where uh, somebody's life is depending on it. They had, they had blood samples that were available and sure. so they didn't. They didn't know if they had done a test, and they asked us. We looked it up on the portal. it said you did it at uh, 4 4 p.m. in the afternoon, and they go good. And they kept going. So the, the data connection really pays off. That that data connection may be more important than being able to do all those tests on the open platform.
0: So interesting. So I'm sure you've come across some challenges along the way as you were. You know, designing the the, the product, uh, making changes, marketing. If you don't mind, maybe just share a story about one of the challenges you faced and how you overcame it.
1: Well, I always tell people the biggest challenge that we have is funding. Uh, if 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 we were flush in money from the very beginning, uh, uh, we would be way farther along way faster than we are so it's all it's all about the funding people are now because we're we've been out there and doing testing people starting to recognize the importance of what we're doing and it's getting a little bit easier to raise money now Um, that's a big challenge it's not a technical challenge because we have great engineers to work on this Um, there's of course a marketing challenge Um, the, the biggest challenge that we have on the marketing side is is having everybody know what we have that we could provide for them if every if every end user who who performs these covid-19 tests knew that they didn't have to type in the data i'm sure every one of them would be talking to their distributor about getting an assay device just to save the typing and to eliminate the errors so um Those are really the challenges. We have funding and we have letting everybody know that we exist so that they can contact us. Of course, uh, we're waiting to get through an emergency use authorization. Uh, Once we're through that, then we'll be able to go to market. We we did decide to add on drugs of abuse testing, which is another point of care test that's very similar to COVID-19. And that does not have any FDA requirements for work, uh, workplace and judicial. So um, again, that's, that's another marketing thing, letting everybody know that we're out there and that we can do drugs of abuse. Um, and we're reaching out to people in the judicial area specifically because the data can be accumulated for um, a chain of evidence.
0: So uh, So you have a very unique product. You have some very unique capabilities. It's obviously have a lot of value to the end users. Why do you think you've been challenged in fundraising?
1: Uh, Well, to begin with at the very beginning, people really weren't aware of uh, the coming of value-based care. They were unaware of telemedicine and the, the status quo generally was okay, so there was, the draw wasn't there. Um, The historical challenge has been, in order to get somebody to invest, they wanted to know if we had any patents, which we do now, we have two U.S. patents. Uh, Mm -hmm. We did not have any issued patents until June of 2019. So that was one challenge, Uh, we had one investor that asked me to let him know when we got a patent he said he would invest I let him know that we had a granted patent and he invested um, there's others that would like to know if we've reven- if we generated revenues and for those that that was a have to didn't rev- we didn't generate revenue so they wouldn't invest so each each of the investors um, had some reason that they they wouldn't want to invest, and with each one of them, uh, we identify what the barrier was, and, and in some cases, we were able to uh, to show that we that we've gotten past the barrier, and many of them have invested. So, uh, the other piece is, frankly, uh, Lonnie Edelman has not. Uh, this is the first time I've had to raise money, and with Aerocom with the programmable PCR machine, there was nobody else in the world that had a PCR machine in the market. And there was a high demand. Uh, For those of you out there who are in the life sciences and molecular diagnostics, uh, even in a a molecular biology lab, you know that uh, a thermal cycler, a PCR machine is a staple in the lab. Well, in 1988, there weren't any. And there was this new process, PCR, that everybody wanted to do. So we gave them an appliance, and orders just flowed in, literally, in the morning, and the afternoon. It was amazing, and we hadn't raised any money. And um, it built a company. Uh, this time, uh, we needed to raise money. It was a much bigger endeavor. And uh, I have no personal track record at making money for venture capitalists or angels. So that was another challenge for me. They're putting their money into a company that I run, and uh, they would like to know that there's going to be a return on their investment. And uh, so I show them projections. I show them what we've done. I show them what we're going to do. And then we get some investments, and we're starting to gain traction now. But uh, if I had been somebody that had – that had run five companies all venture backed, all of them went to IPO or exited, it would have been far easier.
0: Yeah, I understand that is always the challenge, right? They, uh, they like to invest with, in, uh, in companies where there's a track record. Uh, and as we've talked about before on uh, other podcasts, really venture capitalists have kind of moved a little later stage. Uh, they wanna see revenue, it's much harder now to raise money, uh, certainly for development, proof of concept, um, except in very limited areas. So yeah, that's, that's a, unfortunately a very typical challenge, Lonnie. Um, well, as we're wrapping up here, I want to just give you the opportunity to, you know, share any final insights you might have with some of our entrepreneurs out there listening, trying to figure out, you know, how to start their business, how to fund their business, and maybe some parting words of advice.
1: So the one thing I always like to tell people who are thinking about starting their own business, any business is you really have to want to succeed. Whatever the motivation is, you have to really want to succeed. And um, it, and if one has a significant other, you should make sure that they are, they're behind you and they're ready for the ride because it's, it's a rocky ride. doesn't matter who you are. And so those two things, a dying need to succeed, the support of your family uh, to, to get through are the, are the most important things um, before you even start. Uh, having, a, having a product that answers a real need that exists in the marketplace, uh, whether or not people realize it, but you know that they will eventually realize it, extremely important, and having a plan that takes you from where you're at to, to generating revenues. And I highly recommend having an exit plan. And my first company, I had no exit plan. My first company was like a fourth child. And whenever anybody asked me what my exit was, I would give them a different answer every time. So I, after thinking about the first company before starting the current companies um, I realized that I needed to have an exit plan and it's a little bit easier the second time around. Uh, you you can see things more in perspective and so those really are my recommendations but you really 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 need to want to make it happen. It's not a it's generally to make it big and it's not like you're gonna take it easy on the beach and do whatever you want. Um, when I started that, started that first business I thought uh, i'm going to do all the hard stuff do whatever i want well i could do as much hard stuff as i wanted but i found out there were a lot of people i reported to uh, along the way or else i couldn't get the hard stuff done so realize it's not a walk in the park you can't do anything that you want and still succeed
0: that's great line you know it's interesting we we hear that on so many of these podcasts from a number of other entrepreneurs we've talked to that you know, really the key to success. Yes, you have to have the inspiration, but then you have to have the perspiration and perseverance. And uh, it's yeah. great to hear that you, uh, you agree. Well, we need to wrap up. I want to thank you, Lonnie, for participating on this podcast and for sharing your really, really interesting story and incredible technology that is so relevant right now with what's happening, uh, not just in America, but across the whole globe with the COVID-19 pandemic. So thank you again for being our guest. I am Jeremy Glazer of Mints, and thank you for listening to this edition of From the Edge.